So there are two things that are true. We owe God everything. And there is nothing we can do for God. We owe God everything. And there is nothing we can do for God. We owe God absolutely everything, every atom of our bodies, every moment of our lives, life and love and the entire creation was made by God and is held in existence by God for every instant of time. And without God's loving attention would vanish out of existence. We owe God everything. And there's nothing we can do for God. God doesn't need our gifts. God doesn't need anything from us. We can't do God a favor or put God in our debt or even pay God back for what we owe, which is everything. Now we can keep God's commandments for sure. Like the center ones, the 10 commandments that we heard today. Or as they're called in godly play with children, the 10 best ways to live. And keeping these commandments is a way of honoring God, not a way of paying God back or doing a favor for God, but certainly a way of honoring God. But whether we break them all the time or somehow, even if we could manage to keep them perfectly every day of our lives, they don't change the fact that we owe God everything. And there's nothing we can do for God. But now people still feel a deep instinct to do something for God. Whether it's so that we might get God to do something good back for us, or just to express love and devotion, or most likely because we are human, some combination of those motives. So we try to do something for God. We make offerings. We make sacrifices. How can we give God absolutely everything? Well, in some societies, the very biggest kind of sacrifice, the one that mattered most, has been to offer a person. Human sacrifice has a kind of sinister but compelling logic, doesn't it? We owe God absolutely everything, our entire selves, so maybe if we give God or the gods an entire self, it will really make an impression. Way back in the book of Genesis is a story that preserves the ancient memory of this kind of logic. It's the story of the time when God's chosen friend, Abraham, came to believe that God wanted him to sacrifice his beloved son, Isaac. And there's this poignant moment as they're on their way up the holy mountain. And Isaac asks, where's the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham says in words dripping with irony and sadness, God himself will provide the lamb for the offering, my son. And then just as Abraham is about to do the terrible deed, God intervenes and tells him to stop. And God provides a sheep instead, providing the animal for the offering. And in this foundational story, we have somehow embedded, I think, the ancient wisdom of God's people of Israel. This ancient realization that taking human life is not the sacrifice that God desires. And it's on that very spot, at least according to tradition, that many centuries later, the temple is built. The temple of Israel on the holy mountain, 
where tradition says this sheep was offered in place of Isaac. And so in this temple were offered cows and sheep and birds day by day, together with other things, grain and oil and wine. The people of God offering their best to make a fragrant offering to the Lord. And into that temple, many more centuries later, walks Jesus with a whip made out of cords. Now, we probably shouldn't read this passage as macho Jesus resorting to physical violence. It doesn't say he uses the whip on people. If you read the passage closely, it very clearly says he uses it to drive out the sheep and cattle. We're talking about a kind of flail or a kind of herding tool. What we should see, I think, with this whip of cords is a carefully planned action. This is not a spur of the moment decision. Jesus seeing something he doesn't like in an ordinary visit to the temple and getting angry and flying off the handle. This is planned. And Jesus has taken the time beforehand to prepare the right equipment. Like a protester getting ready for a demonstration and making a poster and packing a water bottle and phone charger. He brings the right equipment. And he also takes a very methodical approach in what he does. Right in the book of Leviticus, in the instructions for sacrifices, we see spelled out that there are three kinds of animals for sacrifice. You may take your animal, it says, from the flock or from the herds. In other words, sheep or cattle. Or as an alternative for those who are too poor, a bird. So cattle or sheep, or if you're poor, a bird, a dove. And here we see those three kinds of animals in the temple together with money changers to facilitate buying your animal with the right kind of coinage. And this made a lot of sense. Imagine making your way to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. It wasn't exactly practical to bring a cow or sheep with you all the way. A dove might not make it either. Nor, if you got there, were your animals guaranteed to meet the standards because only certain animals were unblemished enough to offer for sacrifice. And so what makes sense is that you would purchase an appropriate animal there. We shouldn't necessarily assume that this setup is exploitative or corrupt, although many analysts read this passage that way. But I'm not sure we should assume that there's something deeply wrong with this system. When I visited Orthodox churches in Russia, at the entrance would be a little shop where you could buy a candle and you would buy your candle and then go in and light your candle. And so this is a similar system at a much larger scale set up to make a complex process in a huge place work. But Jesus sets out to disrupt it. And again, he's very methodical in how he does it. When you read the passage line by line, he goes in with his flail, and first drives out the cattle and sheep, not the doves, because you can't exactly drive out stacks of doves in cages with a whip. Then he goes back in and turns over the money tables. And finally, he orders the dove sellers out too and tells them to take these things out and go. He has a plan for each category. This is a well thought out demonstration. And it is a demonstration. A demonstration is a symbolic action. 
And it's easy after, especially after centuries of art and paintings depicting this scene. It's easy to imagine it as Jesus leaving the temple in complete disarray. Jesus stalking out, leaving a scene of chaos behind him with the entire operation shut down. But this temple complex was huge. It was big enough, as one scholar says, to fit 12 soccer fields inside. And so imagine a scene like this happening today at a big football stadium or a big fairgrounds. And section 117B might be completely disrupted for half an hour or so while life in the entire rest of the complex goes on more or less as usual before security gets a handle on things. What Jesus does in this story might have been missed completely by most of the worshipers and sellers in the temple that day, although it would have been clearly seen by his followers and the people right nearby, which might be why all four gospels so clearly preserve the memory of this event, while other Jewish and Roman historical sources don't mention it. So Jesus wasn't trying to actually shut down the entire temple. That wasn't the idea. He's making a symbolic action in the tradition of centuries of prophets before him. Prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Prophets who went out and did public actions, symbolic actions, to demonstrate what God was doing. They went out to do public actions in the view of others to demonstrate symbolically what God was doing. And what God is doing in Jesus is something new. All down the millennia, we've been trying to give something to God, sometimes by violence and sometimes in gentler ways, always trying to honor our obligation to God because we owe God everything and trying to do something for God, even though there is nothing God needs from us. But now in Jesus, God is doing something new. God is giving a gift to us to turn our sacrifices and offerings upside down. This is the foolishness of the cross that Paul writes about today in our epistle. God's foolishness that is wiser than human wisdom. God taking our systems and expectations and turning them upside down by sending a human being, the incarnation of God's living word into our midst among us as an offering and sacrifice to us. God himself will provide the lamb, said Abraham to his son, on this very spot so long ago. And now God has indeed provided this person whom John the Baptist has named as the Lamb of God just a little earlier in this gospel story. The Lamb who drives out the sheep and cattle and doves because he himself will come to be the offering of all offerings. Now this is not, as Christians sometimes understand it, a kind of return to human sacrifice. Sometimes, often, Christians imagine that Jesus has to die a bloody and painful death to placate a vicious and wrathful God. But that's just human sacrifice all over again. And that is human wisdom, not God's. It's not God who demands violence 
but we do. And the offering that Jesus has come to bring is not about his death so much as the entirety of his life. It's his whole life of love and healing and teaching. It's a life that is faithful and brave. And yes, that life does lead him into the teeth of violence, into the teeth of our human urge to violence. So his death also is part of that offering. And so we can truly say that we are redeemed by the death of Jesus. But this is a death that is willing to endure our violence, is willing to absorb it and end it, not to glorify it. Behold the Lamb of God. A life lived in its entirety as a fragrant offering. A life into which you and I can be drawn. We owe God absolutely everything. And there's nothing we can do for God. Nor do we need to. But Jesus has come among us as God's gift to us and will draw us into a new way of living that will indeed demand absolutely everything from us, but a way that is also life and peace and joy without ending.